Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who, if combined, would make one hell of a woodworker. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it's show number 462 for February 22nd, 2020. On today's show, we're talking about taking classes. What should you expect? How should you prepare? Should you bring extra underwear? I like how that rhymes, too. I worked hard on that. Very much. Oh, and don't know it. All right, we'll get into all that stuff. But first, I need to tell you that today's show is sponsored by Rockler. Rockler has been helping customers create with confidence for 65 years. In fact, they're currently celebrating their 65th anniversary, so be sure to head over to rockler.com and check out the Founders Day sale. And if you want to help support the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash woodtalk and signing up to become a patron of the show. And we have some people to thank this week. And because I have to say all these names and Mark doesn't, that means that Matt is a new name yeah. butcher. Oh, yeah. Here we go, baby. Make it this, happen. <laughs> this week, we'd like to thank Peter Villaluz, John Verelt, Stephen Caperton, and Tim Nordman. Very nice. That's every bit as good as I could have done pretty it. Good. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was, I'd say that was probably better than I Mark could have so. done it. I yes. Oh, I mean. Things that don't get said often enough. <laughs> That's point. Johnny V's been a patron for a while, and I don't think his name's ever been pronounced even close to no, correct. Most of the time, we just say yeah. Johnny V. That's why we call him Johnny <laughs> yeah. V. Johnny V. Well, you should have told me that like you know thirty uh, seconds ago. No, it's more fun no, this way. No, it saved me some heartache. Fun to yeah. set you up for failure. Sure. <laughs> All right, so let's get into some news. Haven't talked about news in a while. I mean, it's woodworking, so <laughs> nothing happens. What are you going to do? Um, but. <laughs> First, <laughs> groundbreaking tenon techniques discovered on the walls of King Tut's yeah. tomb. There's a new video where someone repeated a technique that we learned hundreds of years ago. All right. It's a domino. <laughs> but they now claim they invented it. That's right. So it, if it didn't happen after 2006, it didn't happen. Okay. Uh, let's see. What do we have here? Six. 2006. That's when, the inter- that's when oh, woodworking started. Everyone knows. Only because that's when you started. That's <laughs> kind of more important. <laughs> How do you know? Okay. <laughs> so we did a little poll uh, because we we were contemplating changing the show title system. 
Uh, and this was really just an organizational thing. Um, I, I know personally when I see all the titles and they just have funny names, I love the funny names, but it does like there's an organizational side of my brain that hurts every time you look at that list of titles and it tells you nothing about what's in the show. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at that going, okay, well, we're going to focus on more topics. You know, today we're going to talk about taking classes. So that's something that you might want in the title. And I was considering moving toward more informative titles and less, you know, goofy stuff. And I did a poll because honestly, it's really up to you guys. You're the ones who are listening and using the, the old archive and going through these things. Does it matter? It was an overwhelming majority, like 85% to 15%. People far and away prefer goofy titles for the show. So, you know, you, you spoke and we are listening. We are continuing with goofy titles. The good thing is most podcast players that I've seen, they give the title, but they also give that little excerpt that's in a description, uh, which will tell you what the show is about in just a sentence or so. So, I mean, the information is still there, but you do have these funny titles on top of it. So I'm okay with that. That makes sense to you guys too. Yeah. Works for me. Uh, someone just rang the doorbell. I'm going to try and, uh, I like making up funny titles. That's one of my favorite things. To do. You know, it is, it is a challenge. Sometimes we do go through that. Like after like, Hey, did anyone think of a title for today's show? <laughs> did anything say anything yeah, funny? No. Okay. We'll just make, no, we'll make something have. up. All right. So that's one thing. Um, also in the news is a bridge city Toolworks price drop. And yeah, this, what? this is, this is interesting stuff. Now, what was it? Maybe a year ago, they announced that Bridge City Toolworks was going to be, I don't know that they were bought out necessarily or that they were just merging with another company that has either connections to Chinese manufacturing or is a Chinese manufacturer. I can't remember the details, but this was like a year ago that they made that announcement. This is the first time we are now seeing the result of that merger or whatever that thing is called uh, and the prices are lower. And if you're not familiar, Bridge City, well, Shannon, you're the hand tool guy. I'm going to let you explain what what bridge city is in the world of hand tools wow that is that's actually not an easy uh answer like where do they fit there i mean john economaki who was their president started making hand tools because he developed a severe dust mm -hmm. allergy like spent decades i think in cabinet making and basically couldn't make a living anymore because he, he couldn't cut wood without like i don't know <laughs> Being unable yeah. to breathe, Having choking to death or something like that. Right. So he started investigating hand tools and he just kind of threw all tradition and, and everything that went before him out the window. I mean, we say that about Veritas. It's like, oh, we innovate. They come up with these innovative ideas. Bridge City kind of took it to the yeah. next level. So all of their stuff has this like Terminator 2 kind of look yeah. to it, you know? It's all very futuristic, a lot of anodized stuff, um, hyper adjustability, you know, the, the whole idea of um, when, when um, the, Lee Nielsen and, and Lee Valley started saying, okay, well, now we're going to sell different pitched frogs. So you can have a York pitch frog and a higher angle frog. Bridge City came along and said, no, we're just going to make an adjustable. <laughs> and they make, it where make you this want. like skeleton looking <laughs> yeah. thing. You know, it's just very, very cool. I just remember... Um, I first got real notice of them when they came out with the Joint Maker Pro in like 2009, because yeah. it was basically a table saw that was um, hand powered, you know, using a Japanese saw blade. Um, it was just a, a really cool design, very, very, very well engineered. Like everything they do is hyper engineered. Mm -hmm. 
and it just screams like computer modeling, 3D printing. So it's just kind of the the um, modern day meets old tool. Kind of cool. It's a, it's a neat confluence of of design aesthetic yeah. more than anything else. Because there's stuff, whether whether you think it's pretty or just cool looking, it's definitely evocative, oh, yeah. right? You look at their stuff and it definitely leaves an impact on you. Well, and I would say, you know, when I try to classify these companies, if you look at Lee Nielsen and uh, Lee Valley as sort of the BMW, the Mercedes, it's sort of like the, if the ever man, the every man ever gets enough money, they're going to spend it on this, right? They're going to get that, you know, relatively high end vehicle. And I feel like Bridge City was that next level higher. What would that be? I don't know cars. Would that be like a Ferrari, a Lamborghini? Are we talking like that, that far of a jump? Yeah, that's uh, McLaren. <laughs> I don't know cars. So, but the, the, here's an example. I mean, Maserati. I'm, there you go. See, it, to me, like Ferrari and Maserati, they're almost too mainstream. That's why I say like yeah, McLaren, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, or, or Bentley's too luxurious, but there's something, there's still something boutique feeling about Bridge City. I mean, just the fact that like you couldn't just go on their website and buy stuff. They did things in limited production runs and they were numbered. Yeah. So there's a collectability side of their stuff sure. as well, to the point where like the old tool dealers um, that you can go and buy like, a, you know, an 18 something wooden rabbit plane also sell Bridge City tools, even though it may only be 20 years old, like the value on these things doesn't actually go down. It's really crazy how they, how they, they created this, this cult. So following. then this ties perfectly into the thing I wanted to touch on, uh, what what does this price drop do to the company? Because, it, you know, in some cases, here's an example. The dual angle block plane is now $599. Previous price was $769, right? So that's it's a pretty significant drop. That's, and that's hundreds. Yeah. And then you've got the, uh, the, the HP 12 dual angle bench plane, and that's uh, $1,080 is dropping to $800. So in this, you know, part of the cachet, I guess, with Bridge City was the fact that, you know, it's availability. It's a little bit of a, a showpiece, but also an incredibly amazing, you know, user experience that goes with it. So I wonder, like, that's, I don't think any of us have answers to this, but I just wonder what the the end game is here and how Bridge City will be viewed from here on out. Also, what about the quality if they're doing this manufacturing overseas to increase productivity, to get the prices down and to make these things actually purchasable? You know, what is actually going to happen to the overall quality? I'd like to see some side-by-sides of the old and the new, but does this ruin some of that for people who've been maybe investing in these tools and thinking of them as like a long-term investment of sorts? You know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I definitely think there's going to be a before and after, you know, like in, in that old handsaw world, we go oh, pre-World War II handsaw, post-World War II handsaw, and everybody turns their nose up at a post-World War II handsaw because manufacturing processes kind of lowered the quality and everything. This, however, I don't know, because so much of what they built was built around modern manufacturer process to begin with. I think that, keeping my fingers crossed, hopefully I'm thinking that pr- quality won't drop mm-hmm. that much. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, there's always corners that can be yeah. cut, right? To lower production costs. I think with greater capacity by by, you know, selling selling out and I don't mean in a bad way, selling <laughs> selling out, I shouldn't say selling out then. <laughs> selling the company to an entity with much greater manufacturing mm-hmm. capacity, you could use the same quality control um, and produce the same quality of things. You just have ability to do it more efficiently, and therefore you can drop yeah. prices. You know, it's kind of like 
when Matt was doing his flooring and molding project, you know, <laughs> poor Matt all by himself doing it. And it's like, I ran that much molding by eight 30 this morning, <laughs> you know, and, and the same quality, I'd, I'd like to say the same quality, actually our, no offense, Matt, ours no might even be better. better quality. Oh yeah. You know, because it's done on a better machine. Guaranteed it's more consistent. Yeah. You know, I mean, my machine costs more than my house. So it produces really, really good quality stuff. And, and yeah, it was done, you know, before Matt got out of bed this morning. Yeah. So you know, that, that, that type of thing with greater capacity doesn't necessarily mean the quality falls off. Um, and because so many of their materials, like when it comes to hand planes, the quality of hand planes has so much to do with the casting, that soul and getting the soul of the plane, S-O-U-L yeah. as well. Um, and, and I remember visiting Lee Nielsen and talking to Thomas Lee Nielsen about, um, like the foundry that they work with. I don't think they, I think they were thinking of buying it at one point, but now I think they're just exclusive partners with this mm -hmm. foundry in new England and like the, the sheer amount of defects that never make it up to oh, Maine yeah. to Lee Nielsen because founding, founding, Found foundering, <laughs> foundrying, <laughs> casting. I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the verb is for that. Making <laughs> planes, plane bodies <laughs> is such a, I don't know. I don't want to say inexact, but from my perspective, it's a very inexact science. And it's kind of like all the elements have to come together just right to produce something that doesn't have air pockets and is going to be perfectly stable with the right amount of ductability and all that. And Bridge City was using a lot of aluminum and a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not cast, but machined okay. parts. Is that right? Machinists are like rolling their eyes at me right now, but you know, they were able to buy raw material, raw steel, instead of having to actually cast it into something. So, you know, it'd be like the equivalent of me looking on my master car and buying raw yeah. steel or, you know, like Matt bought raw steel to make his bandsaw mill. And then you actually machine it into various things. They're not actually doing any casting. And I could be wrong in that mm -hmm. too. Cause I, yeah, probably. They, they look like more machine parts than uh, cast. Yeah. Right. So I do think that, you know, with modern production capabilities, there's no reason why the quality shouldn't fall down. So do you think, uh, this brings up into a, a, like a price range that you might consider? I know for me personally, the only bridge city stuff I have was given to me as a gift and it's one of their lower price squares <laughs> that they offer, but still their lower <laughs> price squares are still really expensive. Um, I've never, as much as I do like to spend money on tools because I do that a lot. I've never been able to justify pulling the trigger on anything Bridge City. And I'm looking at these prices going, well, I mean, now, now they're getting a little bit closer. If you really wanted to splurge on yourself and have this like amazingly crafted, beautiful looking thing, you, you might consider it. Yeah. I'm looking. <laughs> Not pulling the trigger. Yeah, you know, just looking. What, what, what should I It's buy? funny because the Bridge City is like in direct contrast like a couple shows ago or last show or whatever, I was talking about Andy Klein's yeah. vice. Like I bought it because it's cool. <laughs> it's geeky, steampunky and cool. And there's that same element of bridge city. But when it comes to hand tools, not even lately, like in the last six years or so, I have sold so many hand tools because they're just, they're too specific. Mm -hmm. Like I I've become much more like utilitarian in the tools that I use. I'd much rather use a wooden rabbit plane for like, 10 different jobs than have a specific side sure, rabbit plane. Yeah. Um, I have a dovetailing plane that I absolutely love. It was made by Phil Edwards over in the UK, but 
the utility of it is quite small. It's such a niche tool. Um, and it, you know, how often do I really use it? Not all that often. And I have to wonder if I'm optimizing my tool set, most of the tools that Bridge City comes out with just are superfluous, but they're so cool. <laughs> like, like they're, they're, um, they're, what are their contour planes? Like the, with the adjust, the, um, replaceable sole that fits a specific mm-hmm. contour. Um, very cool idea. You're basically taking a hollow and round plane and, and being able to swap in and out the profile on the bottom of the right. plane. Um, some of their, their, uh, combo type things like the thicknessing plane they have that runs on rails very cool idea even the chopstick yeah. maker it's just a really cool idea but man the price tags even after the price drop really they give me pause for something that's just yeah. cool yeah it, well it's interesting <laughs> you know, stuff i could put it put it hanging on the wall i mean they are definitely beautiful they got those you know, bright you- anodized <laughs> aluminum colors on there and everything is accents i mean they they are gorgeous pieces of gear all right. Well, anyway, we just thought we'd mention this because it's it's kind of a neat thing. If you're interested in it, it's certainly something to keep an eye on one way or another um, because it's uh, some pretty cool tooling there. Okay. I think we should get into our main topic here. Um, All right. What okay. Do you, what do you, I guess maybe I'll, 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 I'll take over since it's supposed okay. to be me according to the show notes. Why don't you do that? <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to talk about classes. It's It's a new year kind of, you know, halfway through the second month, that's still a new year. <laughs> so uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe a lot of you are, are thinking about taking on new skills. Maybe you want to take some classes. That seems to be a goal. Like this came up in the hand tool school community. Like what are your goals for 2020? And like, everybody says, I want to take a class. Yeah. You know, that seems to just be something that comes up. So um, I know among the three of us, we've all taken classes. We've even taught classes. So kind of wanted to walk through some perspectives on that. You know, what are, what are your expectations when you take a class? What are you like, how are you preparing? How do you choose what kind of class to take? Is it just subject matter, location, all that fun stuff? Yeah. There's a lot to consider. So where, where did you get this statistic from? So first of all, read the stat and then tell me where you got it. (laughs) Oh yeah. There is a statistic that says that less than 50% of the people who take a project-based class actually finish the project. And I don't just mean like finish it within the time of that class, but like yeah, ever. Take, they take it home <laughs> and don't finish it. I took the class four years ago and that, you know, whatchamajigger is still sitting over in the corner of yeah. my shop. Um, this came actually uh, from Roy Underhill quoted this to me. Um, Christopher Schwarz quoted this to me and he was very clear in saying, you know, I'm pulling the, the number out my butt, but that's what I'm seeing is like half the people never get around to finishing it. Um, and shoot one of the, um, one of the people who does a, oh, was it Peter Follinsby? I think it was mm-hmm. Follinsby. Um, it was talking about the classes that he teaches up at, uh, Lee Nielsen quite a bit. So he's, he's seen a lot of those joined chests get started, but never get finished. Interesting. Um, and they just kind of, and, and, and I know Chris was very clear to say, you know, the experience was taking the class and they had a great experience and, you know, they have every intention of finishing it, or a lot of times it's specifically not finished because it needs to be knocked down to, you know, fit in the back of a car in order to get home or packed flat to be shipped back and things like that. And it gets home and life resumes, you know, and more than likely you already have a project or two in the shop and it just never gets it done. It is funny in know? classes. And I think 
I think all of us have not only taught some classes, but taken them as well. And as a student, I find that when I'm in that situation, I'm in this weird, um, it's this, this weird mindset that I, for, I kind of forget what my normal life is like. And I can see how this can happen to students where they get back home and, and the, the days that haze that you're in wears off. But while you're there, you're like, oh my gosh, when I go home, I'm going to do this. I'm going to add that. I'm going to do this. But then you get home, reality sets in and you're like, yeah, I'll do that later. <laughs> like I got, I got other things to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does have this effect on you, especially if it's a longer class, like a five or seven day class. Right. And I think with that, some of the opposite happens too. Like, unless you're a pro, no one is spending eight to nine hours a day for five, six days in mm-hmm. their shop. It's exhausting. Some people really have So trouble. you get home from this yeah. class and you're like, oh, I don't really want to see yeah. my shop. Like, you know, that and the fact that, you know, the wife and the kids are like, who are right. you again? You know, <laughs> come spend time with us. So before you know it, two weeks have gone by and you haven't even set foot into the shop. And then you get into the shop and you're like, okay, now where does right. this go? <laughs> so here's tab A, where's slot yeah. B, you know, and you, you just trying to remember how it all goes together and it just kind of gets pushed off into a corner yeah. somewhere. Well, I think it's, it's super important that you, you think about what you're going there for, you know, and, and, and also consider the fact that other people are going there for different reasons than you. And it's very hard for the instructor to cater the class to each one of those expectations, right? So just think about it. Think about why you're taking the class. What is your ultimate goal? Um, are you trying to build a project or are you really just kind of, yeah, we're going to make a project, but I'm really going there to get these techniques. Or is it like a social thing? You want to meet this instructor or a couple of your friends are going, so you're doing a group thing and everybody's going to the class. Um, I think it's important to set those expectations ahead of time just to see, is this the class that's going to provide that for you? You can ask around to find out what it's like taking a class at that particular school you're considering. And if it's conducive to, to doing what you hope to get out of the class, that's super important. Um, and along. So what, what about like, how would, how would you guys answer that? Like why, when you go to take a class, why are you taking the class? Like, do you want a project or do you want a technique focus? I could say for me personally, it would be more technique. I would pick it. I would pick a class based on who's teaching it and what that person's specialty is. Mm. And, and I would try to, um, steal as much information from their brain as I could while I was there. Uh, making a project is secondary for me. Yeah. Uh, I'm the same way. I would say mine's more experience based. So I guess technique, if you have to lump into that category, but I'm just there to really, I don't know, get out of my shop and maybe try something I haven't tried before. I'm not really too worried about finishing it or I don't really, I don't want to say get anything out of it, but just other than the experience. <laughs> yeah. Matt just has no expectations. That way he's always happy. Actually, that is very true. That's a great way to manage expectations. Have lower expectations. He's a perfect student. That's great. Nice. (laughs) I I remember I took a class with uh, Chuck Bender uh, a long time ago. And one of the guys in the class would, uh, this was like a week long class. He would disappear at lunch, you know, and Chuck always like had lunch provided as part of the class. So it was always conspicuous that he wasn't there. And then we wouldn't see him until like three o'clock. And he was like going and taking a nap every single day. It's like, you pay good money for this. And basically three hours every day. You're taking <laughs> That's a amazing. Nap. All right. Whatever works I, for you. Uh, man. I actually envy that a lot. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So other things to consider here. Um, of course, the venue, the instructor, the complexity of the project, the length of the class. 
um, you know, a one day class, you can't really expect a whole lot out of that outside of a few techniques, you know, versus something that's like a five day class. But you have to bring a sense of, I don't want to say common sense because this is not something that's commonly known. But if you see a class that's a really fairly complex project and it's a five day class, well, you have to think about how are you going to be able to build that thing? Right. So this comes down to the whole setting your expectations properly. So I'll give you an example. Um, the Blacker House Chair is a class that I took with William Ng. And I think it's a, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's a seven day class. Yeah. Really? It's either, either seven or I don't know, maybe it's 10. Either way. I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Either way, <laughs> this is one of the more complex. That's a, that's a commitment. Yeah, it's a complex chair, right? And you've got about, I don't know, maybe 10 other people in the class or eight other people in the class. How are you going to get that done? There's only one way to get that done for everyone to be complete or near complete at the end is to have lots of jigs, lots of tools ready to go. And you kind of, in some cases, become a little bit of like a line worker. You know, you, you, okay, you wait for your turn, you grab your part, put it on a jig, run it through. Okay, who's next? And everybody's kind of doing this process and you may not come home. You, you may come home with a product, but you may not come home with the knowledge to build another one because you had so many things set up for you. It's the only way a project of that complexity could be done in that period of time. You know, so I think having, having those yeah. expectations set properly will make sure you're a lot happier with, with what you get out of it. But I think that's more than normal. Like, I mean, you think about everything that goes into a woodworking project from beginning yeah. to end. It's hard, you know, and, and seven days, I think, is about the longest class. You break the, that one week barrier and then you're talking about like apprentice yeah. programs. You know, they call them different things, you know, because people just can't be away that long, nor can the shop be tied up mm -hmm. for that long, you know, wherever the place is being hosted. Um, I did the same thing with a, a Windsor chair class at Roy Underhill's school and every Windsor class I've ever taken, you know, you, you rive out some parts from the log if it's a really good, uh, class, but over in the back room, the legs are already yeah, turned, right? You know, you're riving them just to get the experience of riving. But what you're doing is actually riving the next class's stuff. Right. <laughs> um, because there, you know, there's gotta be time or like we steam bent our continuous arms and that was the next class because you leave it in the form for it to really set for a long period of time. And these have to be ready to go tomorrow. Like we, we steam bent them at Roy's house at like four o'clock in the afternoon and we're shaping them at, you know, eight o'clock the next morning. No, 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 no. <laughs> you can't do that. You know, even if you put it in a kiln, it's got to be there for a couple of days. So that to me has always been, is I'm okay with that as long as I can walk away from the class and replicate it. And like you said, Mark, the jig thing, I start to, I start to get a little, like, if you're going to do jigs, that's cool. But like, show me how you made the mm -hmm. jig or give me like a drawing of the jig so that I can go back to my shop and, and recreate yeah. that. Cause that's what I want to be able to do. If I'm building a class for a project, I want to be able to go home and make seven more of them. Not that I ever will. You want to be able to you get yeah. the idea. That's what I always say. Yeah. Every class is thinking like, oh, I'm going to go home and make yeah, a bunch I'm, of these. I'm still waiting for the second. Haven't, haven't made any of I want to see anything. the second guitar. That's what I'm waiting for. And what always happens to me, like the two classes I've done, the Windsor chair and the guitar class, like, first of all, is taking the class really helped to demystify the whole process of it being like, oh, this is actually kind of approachable. But at the same time, I wouldn't be able to replicate that project in my shop right now because I like don't remember any of the actual details. Yeah. Like 
angles, like measurements, spacing for things. Like, I don't really know exactly what it was because all of that was like, okay, put this piece here and just measure out for that and then put a center line here and do that. And it's like, yeah, I don't really remember any of that stuff right now. <laughs> but I guess if I had a refresher or some kind of guide that kind of reminded me of, oh yeah, I did that next, I did this, especially for the guitar thing because that was a lot more, uh, there's a lot more minutia, sure. I guess, with doing, with doing the guitar. But at the end of the day, it was a fun experience. I have a guitar and I know that if I want to do it again, it's not that intimidating. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. No, but, and you know, the Windsor thing, particularly, I don't think you're ever going to find a different experience than that, Matt, just because that there's crazy. so much. <laughs> well, I mean, and from one maker to another, like Curtis Buchanan will make his chair with a slightly different angle than Peter Galbert will make sure. a chair. And, you know, forget about crossing the ocean like you did, you know, <laughs> the, the British, I mean, the style of Windsor in, in Britain is totally different than the American Windsor, yep. but the, the techniques, um, and that was actually one of the, like the best classes I've ever, well, I can't call it a class, lecture, because it was a Woodworking in America thing, you know, a 90 sure. minute deal. The best thing I ever took was from Peter Galbert at Woodworking in America, because he basically showed us how to design our own chairs. Like he showed jigs that he uses to figure out splay and rake angles to something that looks good and then replicate it off of what looks good, you know, but you take in the class to at least know kind of the process mm -hmm. and you can figure out the angles or not. Cause honestly, I couldn't tell you the angles even when I'm building the chair, it's whatever my bevel gauge yeah. is set to, you know, yeah. whatever that angle is. Well, we 13.331, you know, I, don't I think we, we didn't even have an angle to, if I remember correctly, we just like set it up and like, that looks like good. Pick your kind of, pick yeah. your spoon and rake where it looks good. Set your bevel gauge and drill your holes. Yeah, yeah we didn't have any guides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what looks whatever looks good to you. It's a very, you know, very very hippie kind of thing. Yeah, whatever looks good, Which, do whatever we want. Yeah, and, and I gotta say, total tangent topic. Windsor chair class was what got me in hand tools because of that. Because if it was like pff, angle, uh, that looks good. Okay, set the bevel gauge and repeat that on the other four hole on the other three holes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was totally liberating. And that was like, I was sold at that point. That and the spoke right. shave. Once I used a spoke shave, it was all over <laughs> for me. Yeah. I, I, I was ruined for all I other I say tools. the same thing, but it's for different reasons. Like when I use the spoke shave, it's usually all over for me at that point. Um, <laughs> well, that's I'm it. done I'm today. Done. Okay. So another thing you need to think about here is money. Classes are not cheap. Like, I don't know if people, like if you're looking yeah. for an extensive class, not the, not the one day or the weekend, or I'm talking the five day or more. Um, I'm looking at the blacker house chair in particular is 1625, not $16, it's $1,625. And this does not account for your, like <laughs> where you're staying and all of your meals and everything that go like, it's really expensive to take these more or less, we'll call them like casual hobbyist type classes like that. I think if you're, right. if you have to travel there, you may as well as double the cost of whatever the prices yeah. of the class, the travel yeah. and mm -hmm. lodging. And the most expensive element is the stuff that doesn't have a price tag on it. <laughs> Convincing your wife that I'm going to take some of my, you know, say I have two weeks, three weeks of vacation for my job. I'm going to take one of those weeks and go to this mm -hmm. place. And, uh, you know, I always love how the schools are like, there's fun for the whole family. <laughs> no. Yeah. You know, yeah. There may be an amusement park nearby, but you won't be there with them. So it's like, you they know, you're still abandoning day. the wife and kids to they go, and... go to the same music park every day, yeah. all week. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. That, that has never worked. Heather's been with me a couple times at these classes and like the first day is good. The second day is kind of like, well, you know, kind of ran out of some things to do. Third day, 
Yeah, she's just not speaking to me at that, that point. A tough, it's a <laughs> tough thing work. to do because even, I don't know about you guys, but if I'm in that situation and I've got the wife and kids with me, I actually am in a rush to get out of there and get back to my family. I, I don't put in that extra half hour. If everybody's staying late one night, I won't feel like doing that if my family is there. It's a huge distraction for me. That's that's a hard thing for me to do. I actually prefer not. I mean, on the, on the surface, I want my family to go because then I don't have to worry about anything. Everybody's there. But I know I don't get as much out of it. Then you don't have to feel yeah. guilty. You don't have to feel guilty. Yeah, That's what it really totally. is. Uh, okay. So also here we have some recommendations. Make sure you inquire, check on the website for a list of tools, uh, any kind of tools that you might need to bring and also prerequisites. In some cases, teachers will say, you know, I think you should have this under your belt or a firm understanding of this and that. Um, you want to know those things ahead of time. So there's no surprises when you get there because there, there are times where I'll get a student in uh, into a class who's never touched a jointer before. And I wasn't prepared for that. And then I have to go, okay, so now we need to step back a little bit and make sure we do a full jointer safety review. Here's how you use it. Here's what it does. Um, it's just important to for the teachers to know what the students are doing. And hopefully they give you enough info so that you could pick the right class for your stage where you're at. No, that, that's a fun, like, that's a funny I don't think I could that. ever. Go ahead, Shannon. I don't think I could ever run a woodworking school like with mm -hmm. power tools just because of the crazy stuff I've seen mm -hmm. people do around yeah. power tools. And then they, the whole class stops and it's like, okay, safety lecture right. time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the assumption that people know how to use a joiner. And then there's some dude standing a board up on end, running it across <laughs> the joiner <laughs> on end grain. It's like, everybody stop, <laughs> shut it down. Let's go. And that's, that really happened by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, that just that would freak me out. I could never do that. Yeah, it's crazy. So here's a, here's a thing from my experience, not only teaching, but being in the classes. Uh, do you guys find this too? People tend to fall into like a stereotypical um, personality. So here's a couple of the personalities that I tend to confront in these classes. There's always, of course, the, the total noob, the person who may have not done any woodworking at all, thought that this would be a great way to kill a five-day vacation, and I come home with this beautiful piece of furniture. Um, but they've never touched any of these tools before. There's always that person. There's always a person who is fairly well-experienced, but most importantly, well-researched. They probably are a retired engineer, and they are the first to tell you when you say something wrong or if there's a better way or a better tool that you could use. Um, Wait, that's like the whole internet. <laughs> yeah, well, that... Invents the whole inter internet into one guy and, and he, you know, he or she means well, they certainly mean well, but they're always there to kind of double check you, fact check you, <laughs> make sure that everything's going the way they think it should go. Uh, and then of course you've got like the buffoons and those are the people who are just there to have fun and they don't really care what happens. That's, that's usually Matt. Uh, and I'm like, okay, I know who this guy is. Um, but as, as the teacher, I always try to identify these people as quickly as possible because some of them are going to be helpers. They're going to help the people who are lagging behind a little bit to bring them through a little bit faster since I can't be in, you know, 10 different places at once. Uh, so it's important to find who these people are and then, you know, position them in the class so that they, they can actually help you as the instructor. But, um, as the student, when you go into these things, just be prepared. There's some, there's always some interesting personalities, uh, that end up in these classes. All right. What else we have? Anything else? We're good. I think, I think there's actually one more personality or maybe sub personality. They tend to fall into that know-it-all okay. guy yeah. you're talking about, but there's always the guy that has all the tools. <laughs> yes. 
Like, and, and usually they still have the factory, like rust prohibitive yeah, on them. Comes out his, his bag with a fresh collection of like every Lee Nielsen hand plane. Right. And it's got that new tool smell in it. And they're having, they're struggling with the jack plane and you go over to help them and you go, all right, well, the first thing you need to do and grab some mineral spirits and you remove all of the, the yeah, coating the off of it first, you know, take the blade out and you see that the blade's never been removed and you know, <laughs> things like that, you know, they've, but they've got $2,700 worth of tools sitting in that yeah. bag. That's never been used before. <laughs> that is that awesome. Happened. All right. So uh, I thought this would be kind of fun because we happen to know a lot of people who are instructors in the world of woodworking. And I thought it would be fun to ask them if they have any specific advice that might help people who are going to take classes, things they might want to know before they embark on that journey. So first person I have here is Daryl Peart, renowned furniture maker, builds in a green and green style, but kind of takes it off into his own uh, tangent. But an amazing woodworker, I've taken a couple classes with Daryl. Daryl says, my advice would be to ask yourself, is this an advanced or fast-paced class? And am I able to keep up? And he's he's saying, remember something with the Aurora. That's the class that I took with him. Remember the Aurora nightstand class at Williams, the older gentleman who got behind and then in an effort to catch up, cut himself on the table saw. Another example is my Fremont nightstand class. One time I had 11 students. Three of them were not able to keep up. In fact, one poor woman came to me crying and was almost ready to walk out. The other eight students were getting frustrated with the slow pace and pushing me to move on. I was caught in the middle. Everyone finished in the end, but I was a nervous wreck when it was over. The students who were behind were not necessarily without the needed skills, although some were. For the most part, these students just naturally worked at a slower pace. So that's Daryl's perspective. And you can uh, catch up with Daryl at FurnitureMaker.com. That'd be tough to be a teacher in that situation where you have like a whole range of different work paces and different, I don't know, talents and skills. And it's just a whole collaboration of different people. It's, that's going to take some serious um, uh, skills. I found that sure. to be the most stressful part of the experience is the people management. And, and Daryl's right on. Like, Especially you know. like you get up to 11 students. That's not a small amount of people running around a shop, no. cutting all this stuff and putting and it all I'll together. T- I'll tell you what. I think that's usually where that whole batch idea comes. Like you were saying, Mark, where you're just a line yeah. worker. You know, you, it's the only way you can manage the different levels of experience. There's one other way. And I don't know every, any other school that really does this. I'm sure there are, but most notably the Mark Adams school. When I taught there, they had two helpers for me. It, that was amazing because if I needed to move on and help the more advanced students proceed, so they get the most out of the class, they were always there to do what I needed these other people to do to catch them up. And if you have assistance, that is the one time when you can get that, you know, 11, 12 person class and everybody's happy and moving along, but you need help. If you're the only instructor and you've got to manage that, it's a, it's a nightmare. Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. Oh, it's great. I mean, that's why they're expensive, expensive classes as well, but that's, it's a different (laughs) level at the Mark Adams school. It's pretty amazing. All right. Next one is from Philip Morley. Does, uh, it's important to enjoy the process and not be too hard on yourself. It takes time to get good at woodworking. Philip, I uh, was going to try and read that with your accent, but I'm <laughs> sure. not going to try that. But <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, you can check out Philip's stuff. It's obviously pretty uh, pretty big deal on Instagram, but philipmorleyfurniture.com. I think Philip kind of phoned it in on that one. Yeah, actually, yeah, <laughs> isn't he? I was going to say thank you, Mark, for giving the shortest answer. <laughs> You'd enjoy that one a little bit more. 
it, you know, Matt, it takes time to get good at reading long paragraphs. So it's true. Short, it's true. I mean, short I'm still not there yet. I've been doing this for four years. Uh, <laughs> You'll get there. <laughs> maybe by year 10. So the next insight is from Jory Brigham. <clears throat> you may remember him. Remember, I remember, I remember, I remember, remember him. him from such reality TV shows as whatever that show was called. That he won Cause I can't remember it. <laughs> yeah. Bachelor, That's what it was. Jordan Brigham, winner yeah, of the I, bachelor undercover boss. That, that one too. <laughs> right. Jory says it's usually best if you come with a mindset that you're going to extract as much info as possible from the class. Don't be too focused on coming home with a perfect finished project since there usually isn't enough time for that. For instance, sanding is something that can take days. I don't know about that. Uh, yeah. Use the class to learn how to sand, but don't waste a full class day trying to sand out every imperfection. Do that at home. That's actually really yeah. good advice. That's good. I, I found myself doing that. <laughs> so uh, you can check out Jory at jorybrighamworkshop.com. Jorybrighamworkshop. Now, you know, I had to read David Marks, right? I, I, David Marks, Ooh. you know that guy? You might, you, you remember him? That? No. Uh, so here's David's advice. He says, don't be afraid to ask the instructor questions ahead of time. There are no stupid questions. Bring a notepad, pencils, and a camera. I allow my students to take videos with their phones for personal use. For my wood turning classes, I ask the students to bring their tools if they can. For marketry classes, making pictures in wood, I always recommend that they think about some uh, designs in advance. For class projects like a bent wood lamination, they will need to consider the cost of having their project shipped back to them if it's too big for them to take home. The main thing is for students to gather as much information as, oops, yeah, as much information as they need ahead of time. Uh, as you well know, preparation is key. And of course, David Marks, you can find him at djmarks.com. All right, next we got Jim Heavey. He says, taking a woodworking class is a great way to learn how to safely and accurately use woodworking tools from those with experience. Learning something the right way the first time leads to a markably more success and enjoyment in your own workshop. You can find Jim in the pages of Wood Magazine at the Weekend with Wood show and the woodworking shows. Jim's the best. I love Jim. Very good. Our next tip comes from Dale Barnard. Um, arts and crafts type school, green and green, a lot of mm -hmm. that fun stuff. It says, don't worry about making mistakes or being too slow or looking stupid. <laughs> I actually That's like it face. when this happens. Leave the guy alone. <laughs> you can't do anything about it. Uh, when a mistake occurs, the whole class benefits <laughs> because we laugh at you. No, because... Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dale. I'm misquoting you here. Uh, when a mistake occurs, the whole class benefits because we then figure out what to do about it, adding to the learning experience. Another thing is to ask questions. Listen to the instructor and follow his methods as if you were a beginner. It just might be the easier, faster, better, et cetera, um, way of doing things. One surprising thing I've noticed is my beginners consistently make the best furniture. Think about that. For a full class schedule, you can go to the-cabinetmaker.com for the Barnard School of you know, Woodworking. What, That's what interesting. Dale said really resonated with me. And when I when I take a class, I I didn't even realize I'm doing that. But as he described it, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I do. Like, I don't take a class to go in there to compare their method to my method. I go there. <laughs> I try to forget everything I have learned up to that point. I want to fully absorb this person's methodology, this their way of doing things, because that's the only way I could lower the barriers that allow this new information to come in. 
And I've gotten the most out of my class experiences by not being like the guy who makes a bunch of instructional videos. I'm just a guy in the class. And that has actually served me well um, when I take classes myself. Well, from an instructor perspective, when the opposite happens, you know, it's kind of like, you know, and say something does go wrong and it's like, well, did you do this? Well, no, I did it this method. And it's like, all right, well, that method works, but I can't really I help can't warranty you your experience because because <laughs> what I said was to do it this way, you know, and yeah, it's it's a little a little tough to, to sure. juggle that from an instructor perspective. All right, well, since we're on the topic of classes, did you guys know that Rockler offers classes in all thirty seven stores? I did because they told me and they wrote it down, and I just read it to you. They also have uh, free demos <laughs> on Saturdays, which is pretty cool. Uh, classes include things like wood turning, finishing, CNC, working with power tools, and cutting dovetails. They even have a make and take class where students will compete or cannot compete. <laughs> That's that reality show thing. Um, they'll be able to complete a project in just a few hours. They also offer private classes and class parties for groups where you pick the topic. This has parties. me thinking of my next, my class next birthday parties. party. Yeah. God, forget yeah, Chuck E. Right? Cheese. We're going totally. to Rockler. I had no idea they did that. Does it come with pizza? <laughs> all, all the table saws are token operated That's though. Right, so yeah. I'm sorry. You just get tickets. It's not that fun. You uh, trade them in for bench cookies and like that on the way out. <laughs> all right. So if you want more information, you're saying this like it's a bad thing. This sounds awesome. Rockler, do this, please. I mean, bring in a tr- Throw in a ball tip. Say, we're good. Or a trampoline and we're all set. Uh, so, hey, just click on classes and events at the top of the rockler.com website and you'll find information about upcoming classes and free demos. And that URL, if you want to go there directly, rockler.com slash classes dash workshops. Thanks for supporting the show, Rockler. Otherwise, Red is thanks for putting up with us, thanks Rockler. Thanks for tolerating us. Because <laughs> so far, we've yet to not comment on your mid-roll. <laughs> that, that's what they pay us for. That's the ad-libbing, baby. And add commentary. Mm-hmm. All good. <laughs> All right, let's get into our voicemail and email, let's shall do we, guys? It. All right, first one we have here is from Alan. It says, I have a question on pre-finishing, such as in the case of cabinet doors. It's obvious that I should try to avoid getting finish on the mating surfaces that will compromise uh, the glue joints. But the part I'm not sure about, and maybe it's just me, but with the doors I have made, they usually require a light sanding afterwards to even out any slight variation between the joint of the rails and styles. Is that slight variance just something you wouldn't bother with? Uh, so if I was doing this like I did on my little sideboard project, is I would actually I went through the sanding process. Uh, actually, no, on that one, I'm gonna I'm gonna back up a back second up. here because on on the sideboard, uh, on the doors, I pre-finished the panels as well as the inside edge of all the. Uh, rails and styles. So when I glued it up, I could actually do that sanding. But for um, other parts in that project that I pre-finished, I dry assembled the whole thing and finished sanded it as one unit. So that way, when it came apart and went back together, it was exactly the same position and there wasn't any inconsistency between the mating pieces. So you have uh, two kind of, um, I guess, concepts with pre-finishing. They're either doing your complete finished sanding before taking them all apart and finishing or being more strategic about it and pre-finishing in, uh, I guess, stages, mm-hmm. as is the case with finishing the panel and the inside of that uh, uh, rails and styles. I, I've started to do more, do more like you are with the um, strategic method uh, because my, my, you know, rail and style joints are never perfect and it would drive, it would drive me nuts <laughs> if I didn't sand them. I don't think the most people, I don't think they would be like a lot of, there's always been a little something. bit of something somewhere. Yeah, you gotta you know? have a little, you always got to sand it, plane it, do something, scrape it. 
Um, but I, the inside edge, that's always the killer. A lot of people forget about that. They'll, they'll just do oh. the panel and they'll put the door together. They'll sand, but then they still got to get finished on that inside edge, that little lip. That little tiny man, thing. Man, like, depending on the finish you're using, that could be a real, you know, pain in the butt killer. So it's a good idea just to get a little bit of finish on that, save yourself that headache, but then keep the flats, um, you know, the areas that you have to uh, flush up, keep those raw so that you could finish them later. Well, Shannon doesn't finish his project, so I don't think he has this problem at all. <laughs> no. That's why I bought an HVLP sprayer. Just turn up the flow and just... <laughs> Just one coat across the front. It's yeah. good. That would also work. Need a good to go. I can get into those inside corners. Just crank up the HPLP. Like a finished awesome. dip tank. Just drop it. There you go. Even better. Submersion. Yeah. Gets it in every nice. crevice. Okay. So we got a thing. We got a thing to do. Hold on. Let me get that thing. Here's the we thing. thing. That was oh, it. One, only one voicemail email? Yeah, just one. Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. I feel like we need to have like an abbreviated version of this song now, or we need like a, a slightly, a, a slight, like a version two to show the, the Lumber Update, the quick version. Because <laughs> the first thing I have to say about the Lumber Update, and this is in direct response to about 20 emails, the Lumber Update podcast is not going away because Wood Talk is coming back. It's going to stay as its own show. So no worries, people. I've, I've had few people actually resort to bribery um, based upon the Patreon statistics in the last week. So more than likely, my Patreon numbers are going to decline by me yeah. saying that. Um, <laughs> couldn't take advantage of that. But you know, I, I can't say that I'll necessarily do this every single show, but I do want to uh, keep it alive because that's where Wood Talk is where Lumber Update got its start. So you know, every now and then, throw it out there and maybe we can get some input from, you know, a guy who's bought a lot of lumber and a guy who's bought what two boards, yeah. Matt. In your life. <laughs> That's <laughs> very recently though. So it's a very fresh experience. It was, it was three. All right. <laughs> it was three boards. Please don't remind me. I still feel dirty. <laughs> so, and actually Matt, you may have a little something you can add to this one. This is from Kyle and he says, I milled out a sycamore log last month into one inch slabs and made unbelievably beautiful slabs. I coated the ends in in-sealer thick and stacked and stickered them like I've done many times in the past. I went out to the shed to check on everything and the sycamore has split into toothpicks. Nothing else has done this. I also milled eastern red cedar and cypress the same day and it's all fine and drying nicely. Any ideas what would have caused this as I went from nice 30-inch wide, 10-foot long slabs to a stack of maybe mm. one-by-twos? Mm. Uh, yeah. 30 inches and one inch thick. Enough said. <laughs> There's your issue. Um, <laughs> anytime you're going to mill wide boards like that, and, and you know, in order to get wide like that, unless you're talking about like African trees that are 80 inches in diameter, if you're getting something wide like that, it's a through sawn or flat sawn board. So you've got that nice big hinge down the middle called the cathedral where everything just wants to cup around it. And when it's super, wi super wide like that and thin, like an inch thick, the board itself doesn't really have any beam strength to it. So it's going to warp like crazy. Moreover, you got to think about the species you're using here. Sycamore has a particularly high uh, tangential to radial ratio. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's inherently unstable, but combine that to the fact that sycamore is, we're talking American sycamore. So for those of you across the pond, we're not talking about 
plane tree sycamore that's a maple species, Acer plantinus. This is American sycamore. Um, it's very low density with a high TR ratio, and it's a it's a um, uh, an interlocked grain at the same time. So there's a lot of instabilities going on in sycamore. Throw into that like massive amounts of moisture being dumped from this 30 inch wide slab that's quite thin. So it's going to potato chip and basically crack apart along the way because it is quite low density. It's not very hard, not very difficult to split it just you know with your bare hands. So uh, yeah, the forces of nature conspired against you there and turned that into toothpicks. The way I would have remedied that is by cutting that slab much thicker. Um, Matt, what would you say your minimum thickness would be for a 30 inch slab like that? Nine quarter. Two. Yeah. That's nice. what I would, I would think. Um, do you, do you put much thought? I'm talking to you, Matt. Do you put much thought into, well, certainly <laughs> not talking to Mark. I don't put much <laughs> thought into anything. So <laughs> don't ask me. Do, do you put much thought into, uh, the actual species and how you saw it based upon the species? Um, I would say no, because most of the things that I saw are kind of like, I, don't, I guess I don't, I don't saw a whole diff, whole range of things, I guess. Uh, okay. we don't have, we don't have sycamore here, so I couldn't even tell you what <laughs> like, uh, and I had a couple of ideas for, for Kyle though. Just, I'm, I think your idea is probably the most like likely, but there's also the possibility that maybe that, that log has some shake. So what you're seeing now is actually just the natural uh, cracks already in the log. You couldn't see before when you stacked it or just yeah. from uneven drying because it was in a shed. Is that right? Stacked in a shed out to the shed. Yeah. Maybe it was uneven Zero drying. Effect. So you have, so it, uneven drying combined with the thinness of the slab combined with the species that could have also, uh, yeah, made it not mm. so good. Well, and to be fair, sycamore is actually prone to shake to begin with. Uh, oh. And that has to do with its low density. There you um, go. I mean, it's a, it's a cool wood to work and quartered. It's got that kind of leopard wood look. The, mm -hmm. the medullary ray pattern is, is very, very striking. And generally sycamore, if it's commercially available, it's in quartered pieces because of its instability so that it's makes, just that makes it's a species sense. that's prone to have issues but the fact that he didn't have the problem with red cedar and cypress first of all you're talking about a totally different wood structure you know there's no pores there it's softwood very very different density um also much different um extractive resin property so in other words the the softwoods stay moist and gooey a lot easier than <laughs> the hardwoods that dump their moisture a lot faster so if you hmm. wanted to, like, what if you specifically so, yeah. wanted to go one inch thickness, would he have to rip those down to make them narrower to, to help it dry, you know, in a way that doesn't. Well, but why, why would you, why would you want a 30 inch, one inch rough piece? Cause think about it. By the time you mill that, it's not going to be one inch anymore. What are you going to do with a 30 inch wide piece? You're probably going like to cut seven, up smaller pieces anyway. Right. Um, I'm just trying to, I, I, I often wonder about that because I do have some sawmills that, you know, uh, that produce nothing but four quarter and they never produce wide stuff. And you start thinking about it and like, well, who wants yeah. that? Who's actually looking for, you know, 24 inches wide and, and greater. That's only Kyle that thick is because looking for that. <laughs> yes. You know, and, and, you know, there may be, please Kyle, tell me what it was you were thinking, but you know, most people are thinking slab top yeah, type stuff, right? Well, you can you imagine what a slab table would look like if it was only three quarters of an inch thick? would be particularly anemic. Yeah, it'd look a little weird. That would work. 
it's it's interesting yeah. too because I get this question a lot on my Sama videos where like people ask me specifically why do I Sama so thick? Like when you like why why you cut it so thick? It seems like a waste. Like, well, first of all, I don't know how it's a waste to cut it thicker and then you can always cut it thinner later. Yeah, it's like, not like you're taking it on and it's gonna shrink as it dries. <laughs> that that logic doesn't always kind of work in my mind, but this is the reason is because it's a lot easier because it's gonna be more stable to actually dry that. There's more structural integrity in the wood so much easier to dry white stuff when it has some thickness to it and has some structure. Um, you mm -hmm. get down to these smaller, thinner boards and you get that much width on there, you start getting potato chips uh, and it gets really, really difficult. So like a lot of people had always asked, like, when are you going to start sawing veneer on your sawmill? <laughs> like conventional drawing of thin stuff for, like from green wide is not going to go well. It's yeah. going to turn into this crazy looking potato chip thing. So yeah. when my friend What's Eric first went to it, what was that? a kerf on your sawmill uh a tenth really wow yeah. it's like a really good or a really bad <laughs> well, that sound, that's smaller than i would think you know so maybe you could saw veneer on that <laughs> i mean I, I can saw it i mean it's not gonna it's gonna go crazy and it probably wouldn't look that great for drawing but that's what i'm doing with the vacuum the pressure plates now is the, the plates will hold the the veneer flat as it's drying and then we're able to actually dry things that are really thin like that Otherwise, like if you think about how you would have to dry like a half inch board that that's thirty inches wide, you need stickers every like three, four inches, and then eventually, yeah. like your whole sack is all yeah. stickers. Well, see, I blame you actually, Matt, because <laughs> you did that whole like thin slab RF, you know, vacuum kiln, really, <laughs> and because the number of vacuum kiln water, questions, wait, vacuum kiln. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got a huge list of vacuum cone questions in the, the form at Lumber Update because people who've seen that going, oh, I want to do that now. So there's people like sawing specifically thin already thinking I can get more pieces out of this log. And, yeah. you know, again, depending upon the species, but there's a substantial amount of shrinkage from green log to board. Oh, and with that shrinkage, especially with no beam strength and a thin piece, yeah, potato chip is the result. So. Yep. Maybe, maybe Kyle was thinking in terms of dry time, you know, like he wants to use this stuff sooner. So maybe yeah. he was like, well, I only want this stuff to be, you know, in the end four quarter stock. So maybe I'll go one inch. I'll be able to use it sooner. Well, the good news is, is that a one by two will dry a lot faster than a one. Time by to make three, some cutting so. boards, baby. <laughs> so, you know, nature, nature yeah. did it for him. Think of it this way, Kyle. You don't have to saw it into pieces anymore. Nature did it for you. How much time? <laughs> well, he's also now? got like a lifetime supply of um, stickers for the next stack that he does. It's <laughs> <That's> actually <laughs> true. That's where a lot of my stickers came from. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Well, I think that just about does it for us today. I want to remind you guys that this show is brought to you by Rockler, family owned since 1954. Ooh. Rockler is your go-to source for high quality innovative woodworking tools, finished supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice. Whether you're building a simple bookshelf or a custom desk or a new kitchen, <coughs> excuse me, kitchen cabinets, Rockler has everything you need to make your next project a success. Visit rockler.com and use the code WOODTALK, that's all one word, WOODTALK, to receive free shipping on most orders over $39. Once again, thank you, Rockler, for sponsoring the show. And uh, Shannon, why don't you give them that sweet, hot contact information? contact info so if you have questions you just want to get your moment of fame in the mm -hmm. sun on the wood talk show you can send your questions to uh well go to woodtalkshow.com and you can plug them in there 
or you can hit us up on Instagram. You can find us there at Wood Talk Show or send us a voicemail using the voice memo app on your phone and email that to woodtalkshow at gmail.com. And you can find us individually if you wanted to on Instagram at Matt Cremona, Wood Whisperer, and Renaissance Woodworker. And actually, this week, guys, while you're when you're listening to the show, post a picture of something you made, whether you finished it or not, in a class, and tell us what you thought of that class. And tag us, Wood Talk Show, or use the hashtag WoodTalk462. Dude, that's an awesome idea. We may that's never such a good idea. We may no, never look. We will. Great I idea. We'll look at it. I want to see everybody's. I think this this whole thing about the fifty percent completion rate. I, I want to see that because I've had students that I thought they were like maybe just one little thing more to do, and there was it was a sure thing they were going to go home and finish it. I'd be really disappointed to know that that thing just sat there unfinished and never actually got put into use. So I would I would love to see everyone's perspective on that. Awesome. Yeah. Let us know. Go. You get to participate, audience. Woo-hoo. Participation <laughs> points. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time. See ya. Bye. See you. Wouldn't want to be you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.